This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Corrie Samuel. A Vindication of the Rights of Woman by Mary Wollstonecraft. Chapter 8 Morality Undermined by Sexual Notions of the Importance of a Good Reputation. It has long since occurred to me that advice respecting behaviour, and all the various modes of preserving a good reputation, which have been so strenuously inculcated on the female world, were specious poisons, that encrusting morality eat away the substance, and that this measuring of shadows produced a false calculation, because their length depends so much on the height of the sun and other adventitious circumstances. From whence arises the easy, fallacious behaviour of a courtier? From this situation, undoubtedly. For, standing in need of dependence, he is obliged to learn the art of denying without giving offence, and of evasively feeding hope with the chameleon's food. Thus does politeness sport with truth, and eating away the sincerity and humanity natural to man, produce the fine gentleman. Women, in the same way, acquire, from a supposed necessity, an equally artificial mode of behaviour. Yet truth is not with impunity to be sported with, for the practised assembler at last becomes the dupe of his own arts, loses that sagacity which has been justly termed common sense, namely, a quick perception of common truths, which are constantly received as such by the unsophisticated mind, though it might not have had sufficient energy to discover them itself when obscured by local prejudices. The greater number of people take their opinions on trust, to avoid the trouble of exercising their own minds, and these indolent beings naturally adhere to the letter, rather than to the spirit of a law divine or human. Women, says some author, I cannot recollect who, mind not what only heaven sees. Why, indeed, should they? It is the eye of man that they have been taught to dread, and if they can lull their argus to sleep, they seldom think of heaven, or themselves, because their reputation is safe, and it is reputation, not chastity, and all its fair train, that they are employed to keep free from spot, not as a virtue, but to preserve their station in the world. To prove the truth of this remark, I need only advert to the intrigues of married women, particularly in high life, and in countries where women are suitably married, according to their respective ranks, by their parents. If an innocent girl become a prey to love, she is degraded for ever though her mind was not polluted by the arts which married women, under the convenient cloak of marriage, practice. Nor has she violated any duty, but the duty of respecting herself. The married woman, on the contrary, breaks a most sacred engagement, and becomes a cruel mother when she is a false and faithless wife. If her husband has still an affection for her, the arts which she must practice to deceive him will render her the most contemptible of human beings. And, at any rate, the contrivances necessary to preserve appearances will keep her mind in that childish, 
or vicious tumult, which destroys all its energy. Besides, in time, like those who habitually take cordials to raise their spirits, she will want an intrigue to give life to her thoughts, having lost all relish for pleasures that are not highly seasoned by hope or fear. Sometimes married women act still more audaciously. I will mention an instance. A woman of quality, notorious for her gallantries, though, as she still lived with her husband, nobody chose to place her in the class where she ought to have been placed, made a point of treating, with the most insulting contempt, a poor, timid creature, abashed by a sense of her former weakness, whom a neighbouring gentleman had seduced, and afterwards married. This woman had actually confounded virtue with reputation, and, I do believe, valued herself on the propriety of her behaviour before marriage, though, when once settled to the satisfaction of her family, she and her lord were equally faithless, so that the half-alive heir to an immense estate came from heaven knows where. To view this subject in another light. I have known a number of women, who, if they did not love their husbands, loved nobody else, giving themselves entirely up to vanity and dissipation, neglecting every domestic duty, nay, even squandering away all the money which should have been saved for their helpless younger children, yet have plumed themselves on their unsullied reputation, as if the whole compass of their duty as wives and mothers was only to preserve it, whilst other indolent women, neglecting every personal duty, have thought that they deserved their husband's affection, because they acted, in this respect, with propriety. Weak minds are always fond of resting in the ceremonials of duty, but morality offers much simpler motives, and it were to be wished that superficial moralists had said less respecting behaviour and outward observances, for unless virtue of any kind is built on knowledge, it will only produce a kind of insipid decency. Respect for the opinion of the world has, however, been termed the principal duty of woman in the most express words, for Rousseau declares that reputation is no less indispensable than chastity. A man, adds he, secure in his own good conduct, depends only on himself, and may brave the public opinion. But a woman, in behaving well, performs but half her duty, as what is thought of her is as important to her as what she really is. It follows hence that the system of a woman's education should, in this respect, be directly contrary to that of ours. Opinion is the grave of virtue among the men, but its throne among women. It is strictly logical to infer that the virtue that rests on opinion is merely worldly, and that it is the virtue of a being to whom reason has been denied. But, even with respect to the opinion of the world, I am convinced that this class of reasoners are mistaken. This regard for reputation, independent of its being one of the natural rewards of virtue, however, took its rise from a cause which I have already deplored as the grand source of female depravity, 
the impossibility of regaining respectability by a return to virtue, though men preserve theirs during the indulgence of vice. It was natural for women, then, to endeavour to preserve what once lost was lost for ever, till this care, swallowing up every other care, reputation for chastity, became the one thing needful to the sex. But vain is the scrupulosity of ignorance, for neither religion nor virtue, when they reside in the heart, require such a puerile attention to mere ceremonies, because the behaviour must, upon the whole, be proper when the motive is pure. To support my opinion, I can produce very respectable authority, and the authority of a cool reasoner ought to have weight to enforce consideration, though not to establish a sentiment. Speaking of the general laws of morality, Dr. Smith observes, that by some very extraordinary and unlucky circumstance, a good man may come to be suspected of a crime, of which he was altogether incapable, and upon that account be most unjustly exposed for the remaining part of his life to the horror and aversion of mankind. By an accident of this kind he may be said to lose his all, notwithstanding his integrity and justice, in the same manner as a cautious man, notwithstanding his utmost circumspection, may be ruined by an earthquake or an inundation. Accidents of the first kind, however, are perhaps still more rare, and still more contrary to the common course of things, than those of the second, and it still remains true that the practice of truth, justice, and humanity is a certain and almost infallible method of acquiring what those virtues chiefly aim at, the confidence and love of those we live with. A person may be easily misrepresented with regard to a particular action, but it is scarcely possible that he should be so with regard to the general tenor of his conduct. An innocent man may be believed to have done wrong. This, however, will rarely happen. On the contrary, the established opinion of the innocence of his manners will often lead us to absolve him where he really has been in the fault notwithstanding very strong presumptions. I perfectly coincide in opinion with this writer, for I verily believe that few of either sex were ever despised for certain vices without deserving to be despised. I speak not of the calumny of the moment, which hangs over a character, like one of the dense fogs of November over this metropolis, till it gradually subsides before the common light of day. I only contend that the daily conduct of the majority prevails to stamp their character with the impression of truth. Quietly does the clear light, shining day after day, refute the ignorant surmise or malicious tale which has thrown dirt on a pure character. A false light distorted for a short time its shadow, reputation, but it seldom fails to become just when the cloud is dispersed that produced the mistake in vision. Many people, undoubtedly in several respects, obtain a better reputation than, strictly speaking, they deserve, for unremitting industry will mostly reach its goal in all races. They who only strive for this paltry prize, like the Pharisees, who prayed at the corner of streets to be seen of men, verily obtain the reward they seek for the heart of man cannot be read by man.
Still the fair fame, that is naturally reflected by good actions, when the man is only employed to direct his steps aright, regardless of the lookers-on, is, in general, not only more true, but more sure. There are, it is true, trials, when the good man must appeal to God from the injustice of man, and amidst the whining candour or hissing of envy, erect a pavilion in his own mind to retire to, till the rumour be overpassed. Nay, the darts of undeserved censure may pierce an innocent, tender bosom through with many sorrows, but these are all exceptions to general rules. And it is according to these common laws that human behaviour ought to be regulated. The eccentric orbit of the comet never influences astronomical calculations, respecting the invariable order established in the motion of the principal bodies of the solar system. I will then venture to affirm that after a man has arrived at maturity, the general outline of his character in the world is just, allowing for the before-mentioned exceptions to the rule. I do not say that a prudent, worldly-wise man, with only negative virtues and qualities, may not sometimes obtain a smoother reputation than a wiser or a better man. So far from it, that I am apt to conclude from experience, that where the virtue of two people is nearly equal, the most negative character will be liked best by the world at large, whilst the other may have more friends in private life. But the hills and dales, clouds and sunshine, conspicuous in the virtues of great men, set off each other, and though they afford envious weakness a fairer mark to shoot at, the real character will still work its way to light, though bespattered by weak affection or ingenious malice. With respect to that anxiety to preserve a reputation hardly earned, which leads sagacious people to analyse it, I shall not make the obvious comment. But I am afraid that morality is very insidiously undermined, in the female world, by the attention being turned to the show instead of the substance. A simple thing is thus made strangely complicated, nay, sometimes virtue and its shadow are set at variance. We should never, perhaps, have heard of Lucretia, had she died to preserve her chastity instead of her reputation. If we really deserve our own good opinion, we shall commonly be respected in the world, but if we pant after higher improvement and higher attainments, it is not sufficient to view ourselves as we suppose that we are viewed by others, though this has been ingeniously argued as the foundation of our moral sentiments. Because each bystander may have his own prejudices, besides the prejudices of his age or country, we should rather endeavour to view ourselves as we suppose that being views us, who seeth each thought ripen into action, and whose judgment never swerves from the eternal rule of right. Righteous are all his judgments, just as merciful. The humble mind that seeketh to find favour in his sight, and calmly examines its conduct when only his presence is felt, will seldom form a very erroneous opinion of its own virtues. During the still hour of self-collection, the angry brow of offended justice 
will be fearfully deprecated, or the tie which draws man to the deity will be recognized in the pure sentiment of reverential adoration that swells the heart without exciting any tumultuous emotions. In these solemn moments man discovers the germ of those vices, which like the java tree shed a pestiferous vapour around, death is in the shade, and he perceives them without abhorrence, because he feels himself drawn by some cord of love to all his fellow-creatures, for whose follies he is anxious to find every extenuation in their nature, in himself. If I, he may thus argue, who exercise my own mind, and have been refined by tribulation, find the serpent's egg in some fold of my heart, and crush it with difficulty, shall not I pity those who are stamped with less vigour, or who have heedlessly nurtured the insidious reptile, till it poisoned the vital stream it sucked? Can I, conscious of my secret sins, throw off my fellow-creatures, and calmly see them drop into the chasm of perdition that yawns to receive them? No, no! The agonised heart will cry with suffocating impatience, I too am a man, and have vices, hid perhaps from human eye, that bend me to the dust before God, and loudly tell me, when all is mute, that we are formed of the same earth, and breathe the same element. Humanity thus rises naturally out of humility, and twists the cords of love that in various convolutions entangle the heart. This sympathy extends still further, till a man well pleased observes force in arguments that do not carry conviction to his own bosom, and he gladly places in the fairest light to himself the shows of reason that have led others astray, rejoiced to find some reason in all the errors of man, though before convinced that he who rules the day makes his sun to shine on all. Yet, shaking hands thus, as it were, with corruption, one foot on earth, the other with bold strides mounts to heaven, and claims kindred with superior natures. Virtues, unobserved by men, drop their balmy fragrance at this cool hour, and the thirsty land, refreshed by the pure streams of comfort that suddenly gush out, is crowned with smiling verdure. This is the living green, on which that eye may look with complacency that is too pure to behold iniquity. But my spirits flag, and I must silently indulge the reverie these reflections lead to, unable to describe the sentiments that have calmed my soul, when watching the rising sun, a soft shower drizzling through the leaves of neighbouring trees, seemed to fall on my languid yet tranquil spirits, to cool the heart that had been heated by the passions which reason laboured to tame. The leading principles, which run through all my disquisitions, would render it unnecessary to enlarge on this subject, if a constant attention to keep the varnish of the character fresh, and in good condition, were not often inculcated as the sum total of female duty, if rules to regulate the behaviour, and to preserve the reputation, did not too frequently supersede moral obligations. But, 
With respect to reputation, the attention is confined to a single virtue, chastity. If the honour of a woman, as it is absurdly called, is safe, she may neglect every social duty, nay, ruin her family by gaming and extravagance, yet still present a shameless front, for truly she is an honourable woman. Mrs. Macaulay has justly observed that there is but one fault which a woman of honour may not commit with impunity. She then justly and humanely adds, This has given rise to the trite and foolish observation that the first fault against chastity in woman has a radical power to deprave the character. But no such frail beings come out of the hands of nature. The human mind is built of nobler materials than to be so easily corrupted, and with all their disadvantages of situation and education, women seldom become entirely abandoned, till they are thrown into a state of desperation by the venomous rancour of their own sex. But, in proportion as this regard for the reputation of chastity is prized by women, it is despised by men, and the two extremes are equally destructive to morality. Men are certainly more under the influence of their appetites than women, and their appetites are more depraved by unbridled indulgence and the fastidious contrivances of satiety. Luxury has introduced a refinement in eating that destroys the constitution, and a degree of gluttony which is so beastly that a perception of seemliness of behaviour must be worn out before one being could eat immoderately in the presence of another and afterwards complain of the oppression that his intemperance naturally produced. Some women, particularly French women, have also lost a sense of decency in this respect, for they will talk very calmly of an indigestion. It were to be wished that idleness was not allowed to generate, on the rank soil of wealth, those swarms of summer insects that feed on putrefaction, we should not then be disgusted by the sight of such brutal excesses. There is one rule relative to behaviour that, I think, ought to regulate every other, and it is simply to cherish such a habitual respect for mankind as may prevent us from disgusting a fellow-creature for the sake of a present indulgence. The shameful indolence of many married women, and others a little advanced in life, frequently leads them to sin against delicacy. For, though convinced that the person is the band of union between the sexes, yet, how often do they, from sheer indolence, or to enjoy some trifling indulgence, disgust? The depravity of the appetite, which brings the sexes together, has had a still more fatal effect. Nature must ever be the standard of taste, the gauge of appetite, yet how grossly is nature insulted by the voluptuary! Leaving the refinements of love out of the question, nature, by making the gratification of an appetite in this respect, as well as every other, a natural and imperious law to preserve the species, exalts the appetite, and mixes a little mind and affection with a sensual gust. The feelings of a parent, mingling with an instinct merely animal, give it dignity, and the man and woman often meeting on account of the child, 
a mutual interest and affection is excited by the exercise of a common sympathy. Women then having necessarily some duty to fulfil more noble than to adorn their persons, would not contentedly be the slaves of casual appetite, which is now the situation of a very considerable number, who are, literally speaking, standing dishes, to which every glutton may have access. I may be told, that great as this enormity is, it only affects a devoted part of the sex, devoted for the salvation of the rest. But, false as every assertion might easily be proved, that recommends the sanctioning a small evil to produce a greater good, the mischief does not stop here, for the moral character and peace of mind of the chaster part of the sex is undermined by the conduct of the very women to whom they allow no refuge from guilt, whom they inexorably consign to the exercise of arts that lure their husbands from them, debauch their sons, and force them, let not modest women start to assume, in some degree, the same character themselves. For I will venture to assert that all the causes of female weakness, as well as depravity, which I have already enlarged on, branch out of one grand cause, want of chastity in men. This intemperance, so prevalent, depraves the appetite to such degree that a wanton stimulus is necessary to rouse it. But the parental design of nature is forgotten, and the mere person, and that, for a moment, alone engrosses the thoughts. So voluptuous, indeed, often grows the lustful prowler, that he refines on female softness. To satisfy this genius of men, women are made systematically voluptuous, and though they may not all carry their libertinism to the same height, yet this heartless intercourse with the sex which they allow themselves depraves both sexes, because the taste of men is vitiated, and women of all classes naturally square their behaviour to gratify the taste by which they obtain pleasure and power. Women becoming, consequently, weaker, in mind and body, than they ought to be, were one of the grand ends of their being taken into the account, that of bearing and nursing children, have not sufficient strength to discharge the first duty of a mother, and sacrificing to lasciviousness the parental affection that ennobles instinct either destroy the embryo in the womb, or cast it off when born. Nature, in every thing, demands respect, and those who violate her laws seldom violate them with impunity. The weak, enervated women, who particularly catch the attention of libertines, are unfit to be mothers, though they may conceive, so that the rich sensualist, who has rioted among women, spreading depravity and misery, when he wishes to perpetuate his name, receives from his wife only a half-formed being that inherits both its father's and mother's weakness. Contrasting the humanity of the present age with the barbarism of antiquity, great stress has been laid on the savage custom of exposing the children whom their parents could not maintain, whilst the man of sensibility who thus, perhaps, complains by his promiscuous amours, produces a most destructive barrenness, 
and contagious flagitiousness of manners. Surely nature never intended that women, by satisfying an appetite, should frustrate the very purpose for which it was implanted. I have before observed that men ought to maintain the women whom they have seduced. This would be one means of reforming female manners, and stopping an abuse that has an equally fatal effect on population and morals. Another, no less obvious, would be to turn the attention of woman to the real virtue of chastity. For to little respect has that woman a claim, on the score of modesty, though her reputation may be white as the driven snow, who smiles on the libertine, while she spurns the victims of his lawless appetites and their own folly. Besides, she has a taint of the same folly, pure as she esteems herself, when she studiously adorns her person only to be seen by men, to excite respectful sighs, and all the idle homage of what is called innocent gallantry. Did women really respect virtue for its own sake, they would not seek for a compensation in vanity, for the self-denial which they are obliged to practice to preserve their reputation, nor would they associate with men who set reputation at defiance. The two sexes mutually corrupt and improve each other. This I believe to be an indisputable truth, extending it to every virtue. Chastity, modesty, public spirit, and all the noble train of virtues, on which social virtue and happiness are built, should be understood and cultivated by all mankind, or they will be cultivated to little effect. And, instead of furnishing the vicious or idle with a pretext for violating some sacred duty, by terming it a sexual one, it would be wiser to show that nature has not made any difference, for that the unchaste man doubly defeats the purpose of nature by rendering women barren, and destroying his own constitution, though he avoids the shame that pursues the crime in the other sex. These are the physical consequences. The moral are still more alarming, for virtue is only a nominal distinction when the duties of citizens, husbands, wives, fathers, mothers, and directors of family become merely the selfish ties of convenience. Why, then, do philosophers look for public spirit? Public spirit must be nurtured by private virtue, or it will resemble the factitious sentiment which makes women careful to preserve their reputation and men their honour. A sentiment that often exists, unsupported by virtue, unsupported by that sublime morality, which makes the habitual breach of one duty a breach of the whole moral law. End of chapter 8